You're listening to Therapy for Your Money, a podcast about all things money and finance for therapy practice owners. If you want to feel confident and in control of your financial life, then you've come to the right spot. I'm your host, Julie Harris. I'm an accountant and the owner of Green Oak Accounting. My firm specializes in working with private practices across the U.S., and my team and I have worked with hundreds of private practice owners. I'm on a mission to share all the best practices I've learned along the way because I want you to have a profitable private practice. Hi, everyone. Today, we're talking all about billing and credentialing. My guest is Jeremy Zug. He is the owner of Practice Solutions, a billing and credentialing firm for mental health private practices. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your business? Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Montana and was employed by a community mental health agency at 14, which when I tell most people that they sort of like have a question mark about how that happened. Yeah, that's really uh, young. Yeah, it is. Um, And I was making paper charts. So it was not like a super fancy job making charts. And then I worked a front desk, uh, but there was a job board at high school and I pulled one of the things or whatever, little tabs and gave them a call and I got connected. Uh, But then went to college in uh, Chicago, worked as a biller for a private practice downtown. Uh, And then after that, a couple of my colleagues from community mental health said, can you do our billing because we're tired of handwriting on claims and their liability insurance needed us to be an LLC. So we we did that and the rest is, is history. But I'm married. I have a kid on the way due in February um, and just doing doing the business thing. Great. And so tell us a little bit about Practice Solutions too. Sure. Yeah. So Practice Solutions, like I said, was started to help a small group of people not meant to be a, like an actual, like real thing. <laughs> and so it's grown quite a bit. So we started in March of 2017. And that first year we went from our original three clients uh, to 70 clients by the end of the year. And we have just grown sort of like that ever since. And we have a team of 25 people and a billing department, a credentialing department, and a whole fully fledged team. Great. And your team works exclusively with therapy notes, correct? That's right. So, so we're just in the mental health space and we find that that's really valuable because mental health is a little bit different than all the other healthcare verticals. And we, we do just interface with therapy notes. And one of our core values as a company is that we're EHR gurus. And one of the reasons why we value being experts on the, the EHR that we work with is because they're really... Uh, your knowledge of the tool will impact how effective the billing work is done. And so we know, I would, I would venture to say we know almost everything about therapy notes. Uh, we know what we like about it and we know what we don't like about it. That's a really bold claim, uh, but I like it. Yeah. So Jeremy, even though you're my accounting firm, we don't do any billing. I'll be the first to say that billing is the most important financial function in the practice, because if there's no money coming in, then you really don't have a business. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are some of the common mistakes that you see with billing? Yeah, this is a really, really great question. And knowing that we work with therapy notes, there's a, there's a important variable here, which is 
therapy notes won't let you send out a claim until a, a progress note is completed, which I'll just lead with that, right? I think one of the biggest billing mistakes that we see is incomplete progress notes. And at least in therapy notes, if you don't complete your progress notes, claims don't go out and you don't get paid. So right off the bat, I think that's, that's a big one. And I think ethically, uh, therapists are required to complete those in a timely manner. But I think just getting into a, a discipline of getting those done, especially with an electronic health record that then the no part is hinges on the claims mission piece. I think that's really important. Uh, the second common billing mistake is adding too many insurance companies uh, at one time. The reason I would say that's a billing mistake is because it's too much to juggle right off the bat, right? If you've grown and you've got good systems in place and good functionality in, in your operations, then adding another payer probably is not a big deal or adding another insurance company. But if you're just starting out and you're thinking, I'll just start out with, you know, 15 insurance companies, um, that's going to come back to you later in a not so helpful way. The, the next billing mistake I would see is uh, not collecting from clients. That's a really big yes. one. It's, it's a compliance issue, but it also is where a tremendous amount of your money can come from. And clients know and have signed up for the plan that they have. So it's important to do that. And so, finally, I would say in the era of COVID, not putting the proper modifiers on your claim to, to show the insurance oh. that it's a telehealth claim has been a, a big one that we've been seeing lately. Not as a long-term trend, but as a short-term trend, that's what we've seen. Got it. Okay. So uh, let's unpack some of these. I'd love mm -hmm. to go back to too many insurance panels. Mm -hmm. So I think what you said um, is that you shouldn't start with too many. You should start with just a few and then mm -hmm. add some over time. How many is enough to get started? Yeah, this is a great, this is a great question. I think one is a great place to start. One is okay. a lot more than zero. <laughs> um, and it's a great way to get your feet wet. And so th there's a couple of pieces of advice that I give when I talk about how you're going to think about building an insurance-based practice. And the first strategy that you want to look at is you, you really want to look at what your clinical objectives are. Are you looking to work with geriatric populations? You know, that might take you down a Medicare route or a Medicaid route. Are you looking to do just private pay? Because if you're looking to do just private pay, then maybe just out-of-network billing makes sense for you. Right. If you want to work with, you know, it, let's say there's a college or large company in your neighborhood and they, they take a certain insurance company, maybe that's the one you take. So you need to look at really the context that you're in and the clinical objectives you want to, you know, achieve. The, the second piece of advice I would give is you want to look at the reimbursement rates. And while your fellow colleagues can't give out specifics. You can get a general sense based on what they're charging. Uh, and I would say you got to focus on the profitability of your business first to make a long-term sustainable impact. So clinical objectives and then profitability. And then maybe lastly, just ease of use for working with that insurance company. You don't want to work with an insurance company that's going to be difficult. So asking your colleagues, look, wh wh which insurance company are, is easiest to work with. You submit claims, they don't gripe about much, uh, they pay you, that kind of thing. So I find a lot of times our clients will ask around like in their community, right? Because that does change uh, by location, but just ask around and get a sense for who pays more, who pays less. And then, so do you recommend just staying out of network with the insurances that pay less if you even take them at all? Yeah, I would recommend... 
Well, if an insurance company that pays less fits into your clinical objectives, I would start to look at how can I structure my caseload in a way that makes financial sense, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to not hit those clinical objectives, right? So if we want to work with, you know, Medicare clients, let's say, but they pay, you know, half of much, half as much as what another insurance company would pay. That's something to keep in mind. I wouldn't say no. I would just say crunch some numbers first to make sure that your business is taken care of so you can help those people long term. Got it. And as far as your mistake number one, not completing the notes and not being able to bill, I think we see that often when there's a team, right? It's rarely in a Mm. case of a single practitioner where there's a team and maybe that expectation hasn't been clearly laid out. Uh, Mm -hmm. When do you see that mistake happen? Yeah, kind of both. But I see it when there isn't uh, discipline within the processes, right? I think Jim, Jim Collins in Good to Great really outlines this really well when, when he talks about disciplined thought leads to disciplined actions, which lead to disciplined people, or there's some order there, right? But essentially, if, if we have disciplined thinking about, look, there's a process, the process is that you have a session and you do a progress note, right? And that happens every time, almost like gears in a cog. Uh, I think I think that's the best way to success, but I see it happen often when maybe there's a clinician that has a lot going on personally, maybe is trying to grow too fast, maybe they bought a building and they're trying to juggle way too many things, or maybe when there's a team without a clearly defined training program. But fundamentally focusing on your processes and your systems and discipline to hit those, I think is gonna lead to the best success. Agreed. And and then the copay piece fits really well into that process as well, right? Typically when the copay isn't processed, it's not, or when that payment's not processed, it's not for lack of intention, but there's mm-hmm. just not really a defined process on who does it, when does it get done, right? That's right. That's right. And, and th- there's a way to make that really clear, right? At the front end, you can say when you, when you set the expectations during the initial session or even at an intake, right? You can set the expectation that you're going to owe this amount with every session. And the best way to do that if you take insurance is to call the insurance company, give them the client's insurance card ID, date of birth, name, your NPI, your tax ID, and the CPT code that you're going to bill with. And those things in a phone call with the insurance company and a rep, they will tell you what the client should owe, whether that be a deductible or a copay, there should be not really much of an excuse to to collect from your clients. And then after the session, uh, they pay for their session and then they're on their way. Yeah. So adding that benefit check to the initial intake process is really helpful too, right? As far as knowing and laying out for the client exactly what they're going to owe and when they're going to be expected to pay it. That's right. And and I think that that having a clearly defined billing process that includes eligibility checks on the front end is critical. And, and eligibility checks are, are sort of a necessary uh, pain. Uh, they're a thorn in a lot of people's sides in the sense that they take up a lot of time and sometimes they're inaccurate. And that can cause some consternation. But I think they will give you a general sense of what the client should owe. And one thing I tell clients a lot is, or clinicians, is know your contracted rates from the insurance company and be very clear with the client that we did an eligibility check. They say you owe a copay. It could come back that that's incorrect. So here's the amount you could owe at the, 
in the worst possible case scenario. And just be very clear, right? And Chris Hogan says this a lot, but to be unclear is to be unkind. So be as That's clear and as honest as possible with your with your patients. Yeah, and I think the benefit check can be a hang up sometimes because in larger practices, it's not unusual to have one person who that's most of what they do all day. In smaller practices, it's sometimes unclear on who should do that, when that should be done. What have you seen that that works well? Mm, yeah. So so the process that I see that works the best is when a, when a client calls to schedule a session for the clinician to get the insurance information and then either the next day or the same day to get a hold of the insurance company and and to get that information. I mean, you want it as you want that information as close to the intake session as possible so that when they come in, nothing has changed with their insurance, right? And if your session bridges two months, right? So let's say you get that information in August, but your first session is in September, it would be a good idea to check it in September as well. Got it, to check it again. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just in case. Just in case, you never know if if the client didn't pay their premium or if they're on um, an Affordable Care Act plan and something changed, uh, they could have a change in company completely. Uh, You just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of variability. Got it. Okay. So let's change gears a little bit and go over to credentialing. It's a big piece of growing an insurance-based practice. So how do you recommend that practice owners approach credentialing? Is there a methodology that you use? Mm, yeah, so they're kind of going back to what I said before, just to dovetail. But the first thing to do is to plan, right? Do you want to go private pay, but then do out of network billing? Do you want to be in network with one or two insurances? Or are you going to take a, a lot of insurances and, and make a practice profitable that way? And I think that it's important to start to plan and think through what the end goal is. If the end goal is to meet the needs of a specific population and that specific population has a certain insurance, then to be thinking through how can I build this business in a way that meets those people's needs and also meets mine, right? Because you're the owner of the business and you need to live because you need to live and go from there. So do a lot of planning on the front end. The second part of that is you need to gather a tremendous amount of information. So planning figuring out what the, the game plan is, what the strategy is, picking one, two insurances to start. And then you need to gather a tremendous amount of information, right? And there's, I have a blog that I can, we can attach to this. Sure. That goes through like the comprehensive list of things that you need. It's like 35 th- or 38 things, right? Of, of documents or, or pieces of information that, that, prove to the insurance companies that you are who you say you are. Because all credentialing is, is saying to the insurance companies, I'm a qualified therapist. And you can trust that if your members come to me that they're going to get help and that warrants reimbursement. So being able to prove who you are is important. And then the third step to this is uh, submit your application and tracking that, that thing through the process because uh, it can feel, credentialing can feel like a wilderness at times where you submit an application and it goes into kind of a black hole and you don't really know where it went. And it's up to you, the clinician, to make sure that your application is being tracked. Um, and on that same blog that I'll send to you, Julie, uh, we have a spreadsheet template that we recommend using to track each of your follow-ups. It keeps all your information nice and tidy. 
Uh, I would recommend using that and following up on a regular basis and tracking your calls. But so planning, application submission, and making sure you have all the documentation uh, needed to do that is is really the overall process. And so, what is I, I've seen your spreadsheet. It, I think it's a great um, a great tool. What's the timeline that someone can expect there? That is a great question, and that's entirely depending on the insurance company, it which depends. is kind of a non-answer. But I will I will say, av- on average, our credentialing department sees providers credentialed within 30 to 90 days. It's quite rare that they go past that. Um, we've seen in one very rare circumstance, and I need to caveat it with this was very rare, uh, but we had one clinician get credentialed within 24 hours and wow. one within 48 within the same week. Um, that was highly unusual. I've never seen that. And I, I would attribute part of that success to how organized the, the clinician was that did that. They had everything in a format that was so organized and so neat and all the information was accurate down to the last number. And I, I think part of that was, was how organized that clinician was. And then I think part of that was just an X factor uh, the insurance company moved quickly for once in, in their life. So two in one yeah. week, that must've been really exciting. Cause it was like, wow, is this the new normal? Unusual. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are the differences in credentialing when you're looking at a solo practice where just an owner, mm-hmm. uh, practitioner, and then a group practice? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm getting, I'm getting that particular question a lot because with COVID we're seeing, clinicians not being able to grow a private pay practice as quickly or as easily. So there's something of a flocking to the insurance-based model. So I'm glad you asked this question. When you credential, there's there's two really important pieces of, of information that the insurance companies want to know. One is they want to know where, the, where they need to send money. And the other is where they need to know who to assign claims data to, to track in case they need to audit. So the, the first of those is, where do we send the money? And that's usually delineated by either a social security number or a tax ID. I would almost always recommend a tax ID for that number because one, it's easy to make one with the IRS. Yes. And two, if you ever need to create a super bill or an out-of-network claim for a client, uh, it's going to have your social on it. And I would much rather have your clients have your EIN then you're social. Agreed. And so, the EIN is free. You can get it on, for just in a couple minutes on the IRS website. Yeah, Completely agree quick. with you. And so much easier to, to set it up that way in the first place than to have to change from a social to an EIN, right? Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. It's it's much. Yeah, that's a difficult process. Yes. And well, and then there's the number of where do we aggregate, right? Where If we're going to collect all the claims that clinician Susie sent, where are we going to aggregate all those claims to in case we need to see if she's defrauding the insurance company? And the way they track that is through your national provider identifier, your NPI. And so a solo provider can credential with just their NPI called a type one NPI and their EIN or social. And and that's a pretty simple process. If If you're a solo clinician, I would recommend credentialing with your type one NPI and an EIN, and you'd be good to go. If you're a group, there's there's two different models of doing this. And I forgive me if I'm going to be a little bit long-winded, but I think it's important to understand it. the difference between these two models. So the, the first model is that you have a type two NPI, which identifies the group practice and an EIN. 
what I've started to see, and this model was really popular like five years ago and for the most part died out and now it's coming back out of extinction. But what we saw five years ago was practice owners would have an EIN and a type two, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't credential all of their providers that way. They would require each provider to credential individually. So it was as if each provider was their own practice, according to the insurance company, under a specific location, not a contract. So each clinician had their their type one NPI under the NPI two. No, not even that. Not they even would that. just okay. they would just do their credentialing. I yeah, it was a really weird model. So it was just the type one NPI for the clinician, and then their own EIN, but they were under like a group of clinicians under a, a bigger company, but none of none of the payments went to the larger group. They went okay. to the individual clinician. So the billing and, was done at the clinician level. Right, okay. right. And what happens in that model is if you're planning on, let's say as a value proposition, you're the practice owner and you're gonna say, okay, well, you're gonna pay me X percent of whatever you bring in and that's gonna cover billing. What you'll find is with that particular model where each clinician is their own practice under a larger group, your administrative cost is going to skyrocket because each clinician then can determine how many payers they take on. But, but the kicker is when you go to follow up on claims, you don't give the insurance company one set of information. In other words, just the type 2 NPI and EIN. You have to go clinician by clinician. And you'll find a one at some point the administrative costs become not profitable for your practice, which is why that model started to die out. Got but it. that model is appealing on a risks level, if that makes sense. It is, and I've seen that model not a lot, but you're but you're right, it does happen. Where I call it a reverse contractor, and I don't know that yes. that's a, a formal definition, but where the clinician gets paid and then they pay the group practice yes. a certain prearranged percentage. Yes, it can work, but there can be a lot of complications there. Yes, indeed. The other model, the better model, is that there's a practice owner that has a contract with an insurance company under their EIN and Type Two and they add clinicians to their contract, right? So money flows just to the practice as an entity. The entity then pays the clinicians. The, the risk there, I suppose, is one in terms of liability, right? Uh, it's your contract. So if you have a clinician that's doing shady stuff, then you've got to deal with sure. that. Um, the other part of that that's not a great value proposition to your clinicians is that if they leave, they are no longer in network or they're only in network as long as they're with your practice. And if they leave, they have to do the entire credentialing process over versus the other model, the reverse contractor model. And I love that term. If they leave, they take their contract with them. Yeah. So I think as far as a group practice owner, I think it makes a lot of sense from a retention standpoint to mm -hmm. have clinicians paneled under the group practices NPI as far as keeping the income flowing to the practice as well um, and having some some oversight on what's going on. One of the, the issues from a financial standpoint or accounting standpoint that can happen there is that if the expenses in the practice are, are really high, you can get into a situation where you're there's negative profit in the business, mm. right? Like if mm. you're paying out the clinician a certain prearranged percentage, paying payroll tax on, the, on top of that, and then overhead, I've seen plenty of times where there's negative profit on every single session and that makes for some really awkward conversations. Yeah. 
Yikes. Yeah, that would not be fun. So what it, when someone comes on board, then getting them on, you know, a clinician comes on board to a group practice, getting them credentialed on the practices NPI, how long does that take? Yeah. So, so if you have a clinician that was previously credentialed with an insurance company and you're just moving them over to your contract, that is a much simpler process because the insurance company already knows who that clinician is, right? Okay. You have to think in terms of how does the insurance company view that clinician, right? So let's say uh, you're, you're recruiting a clinician from another practice that was on, let's just throw out an insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shields panel, and they're going to move over to your Blue Cross Blue Shield contract. Our experience is that that's like a 30-day process okay. because the vetting is much simpler, but if you're taking a brand new clinician, just adding them to your practice, that's where like the 60 to 90 day caveat comes into play. Got it. So it's just as if they were getting their own as a solo practitioner. Right. Correct. Okay. Got it. Yep. That was super yep. helpful. I learned a lot there. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad. So I think a good question, and and I think this would apply to both billing and credentialing, is when is it a good time to, to DIY? When should you outsource? Mm. And when is it time to bring billing and credentialing in-house? Yeah, I have a very specific answer for this. And, and I think that there's not a lot of specific guidelines on, on this, but I think it makes a lot of sense to DIY at the beginning. And the reason why I think that it makes a lot of sense to DIY at the beginning is it's important to know how your business functions, right? Like at Practice Solutions, I've done every job here, right? At some yeah. point in the history of the business, I've done it. I've seen how the process has developed. And I can speak with some sense of competence about improving those processes because I've done them. Yes. And so I think it's important to know, generally speaking, what goes into each position and it's cost effective, right? You don't have to deal with a vendor on some level, right? You can, you can start to see how that would work. However, I would say outsourcing, well, one, if, if it just makes you want to pull your hair out, I would say DIY just right off the beginning, but there's not going to be a lot of value for you. Right. I would and say, I, gen oh, I think go you're, you've got an important caveat, like that you need to know as the business owner, how to do the main functions of your business. And, and I think it can be a really big blind spot when you outsource from day one billing and don't know it, where it's just a black hole and you don't yes. know what happens there. That, that can be a little bit uh, scary. Yeah, we were just talking before the podcast that somebody asked me not too long ago to set up their or to form their LLC. And not that I couldn't, I suppose I'm, I could, but I said no out of the principle of you need to understand a key pillar of your business. I mean, it's important to be involved and, and to know how this stuff functions. I mean, I think, I think that's part of the, the blessing and curse of being a business owner. You're going to learn a lot of things, that's for sure. You'll learn a ton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I cut you off. How about outsourcing? What's your yes. benchmark there? My benchmark is start to outsource when you would make more from the time saved than you would doing the business function. Generally speaking, I say if a billing company can save you like three to eight hours a week or, or even a month, that makes a ton of sense because you're not going to pay them the same. You're going to pay them less than what you would make if you were in a session. Yes. Love right. And I had a client one time who was just a brilliant client. He went all private pay and I'm really sad we don't work with him anymore. But he said, if you want to make a lot of money, be a better clinician. And the whole, the context of our conversation was 
for him, outsourcing was to refine his clinical skills so that with his private pay clients, he could charge more and it would feel valuable to him and the clients to charge more because he was in a sense worth more. And, and I think that you don't necessarily have to translate time saved when you outsource to a session, you could translate it to whatever you think is valuable in hitting your business objectives. And the clinicians that the practice solutions works really well with historically is clinicians who know they want to scale clinicians who are going to focus on that, but they outsource billing to us and let us handle it. And then focus on growing their practice really big. And we've had practices that I've seen start at zero and get to a million in a year and a half, and then they're ready to insource. And that would be about my in-house ben- benchmark, right? 750 to a million. Because uh, at that level, it makes way more sense just to pay a full-time person 40 hours a week in your office to do this stuff. Because you're actually going to pay, pay the same or less for that person than you would for an outsource biller who might not touch your billing every day like a full-time person would. Right. And there is some value then that person can do other things in the business like yep. process co-pays and a few other little things here and there. Yep. Um, okay. So like around a million, a million and a half is your mm-hmm. benchmark there. Yep. I, I would think that's an appropriate benchmark. Great. Um, and we see this a lot on the, on the accounting side is when practice owners are really intentional about how they're spending their time in the business, whether it's clinical or working on the vision, the big picture items, the recruiting of a team, they just tend to be a lot more profitable because mm-hmm. they're not getting stuck in those, uh, you know, returning every single phone call and the billing. It's really interesting how spending more money in these cases tends to make you a lot more money too. Yeah, it, it does. And I don't know about, about you, Julie, but I think that when, when I, in practice solutions, when I am thinking clearly and I'm focused on getting the right people on another Jim Collins metaphor, but getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus and the right people in the right seats. That's really a job of a leader, right? Yes. To be making those kinds of decisions. And and I see and run to a lot of clients, clinicians that I, I really feel for in, in my heart that it's like, why are you collecting copays? Why are you taking in- yes. intake calls? Like you're the leader of this thing. Um, and your team wants a leader. They want somebody to drive them forward and to drive the bus and to know that you're thinking about their development and not just taking a copay. And so thinking about that a little bit deeper is also important. And you're right. And those people that are focused on leadership tend to grow practices at an exponential rate uh, compared to their peers. Agreed. And I know, so I get a question often about what goes in QuickBooks versus what goes in my EHR. I think you, we've talked about this before. You get that question a lot too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and oftentimes like I'm not a bookkeeper. So, <laughs> so I actually have a question for you on this. And, and my question is, is it HIPAA compliant to keep patient information in QuickBooks? I mean, is there a version of QuickBooks that you can do that with? So there is no version of QuickBooks, whether it's online or desktop, that is HIPAA compliant. So that that does not exist. And that's why we always recommend not to keep any kind of patient information in QuickBooks. Um, I see once in a blue moon in smaller, smaller practice where they're really replicating every single transaction in QuickBooks, usually with a, either a code or um, initials, but that really isn't necessary because all the the PHI really should live in the EHR and then all the financial information then lives in QuickBooks. Um, Mm, Okay. And the EHR does a great job at 
keeping track of the income piece. And obviously that's really important, but there isn't anywhere in Therapy Notes Simple Practice, Theranest, to manage expenses. And that's a really big piece of mm. the, the tax puzzle and the financial puzzle too. Yeah. I, I think that for me, the a big pain point that we hear a lot is, why is my revenue changing in my electronic health record, right? Isn't the money there going to reflect what's in my bank? And the honest to goodness answer is not necessarily, right? I mean, if you issue a refund, if you, if an insurance company issues a recoupment, I mean, things can shift in therapy notes or any electronic health record. And, and the reason why I asked the question is because in my mind, an accounting software is solid. Like you're going to close out a month in your accounting software and then that's what the record is, right? And then you start a new month based on the chronological day of the month, right? Yes, that's exactly it. So most practices, I'd say 99% of the both solo group practices that, that practices that we see are cash basis. And what that means is that you uh, recognize income when it is received, not necessarily when it is earned. So whereas your EHR might show your know, income of 90,000 because there's still, you know, 15,000 in accounts receivable, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you have 90,000 in income in, in QuickBooks because that wasn't received, it wasn't deposited. Um, yes. and, and especially for for mental health, it makes a lot of sense to stay cash basis because it's a lot less complicated then. So you just count the income if it hits on the day that it hits your bank account. So whenever that deposit comes in. So there's often a timing difference too, whereas like an EOB may get recorded you know, on one day in therapy notes, but it doesn't necessarily hit the bank account on that day. So there can be changes there too. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's something that's always been interesting. I once ran into a practice where they were looking for a building loan based on their aging report. And that, that made me sweat a little bit because an aging report Yes, it is your money, right? So whatever's on an AR report just shows, it's sort of like an accrual basis, right? Where right. it's, this is what we've invoiced for. Technically it's yours, but you don't have it yet in your bank. And then an insurance aging report, an insurance AR report, to me is a better indicator of the effectiveness of your billing processes and, and less of a tool to use to manage the finances of the company. Yes, because so... I have a question for you. The AR report, the accounts receivable report does not include any write-offs, right? It's just the full amount. No, correct. It's open pending claims, submitted or not. Oh, submitted or that's a a good point. So if it wasn't submitted, it's still still hanging out in that report, but you haven't even requested it yet. I get a lot of questions about the write-offs, right? Because people will ask, well, I had all these write-offs. Can I deduct that? Um, And again, like maybe I need to clarify cash basis. There's, there's two different basis bases that you can use in a tax return and that's either cash or accrual. So a cash basis means that you uh, recognize the income when it is received and accrual basis means you recognize the income and expenses when it is earned. Mm -hmm. So if you have a session, for example, uh, on July 31st, that hasn't even been invoiced yet, but that that money was earned in July, then you'd recognize that income in July. You may receive it in August. You may never receive it, but you still recognize that in July. So again, most private practices are cash basis. And so you would, because you've never recognized that income, it doesn't get deducted again. There's nothing Mm -hmm. to write off because it was never counted in the first place. 
Right. Okay. That makes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I get that question a lot and a, and a, a write-off in insurance billing is not a tax write-off. A write-off in insurance billing is actually an agreed upon amount that you as the clinician have agreed to with the insurance company not to collect from the client. Right. So that's, that's the whole point of a contracted rate or an allowable amount is the insurance company has said for a 60 minute session, your time is worth hundred dollars, but your retail rate may be 150. Well, that $50 you're going to have to lose because they're only going to pay you a maximum of hundred dollars between the insurance and the client. Right. And so that $50, I don't, there's in my mind, there's no way to account that on your taxes because you have agreed to in writing, let that go. Right. And with being a cash basis taxpayer, that means only a hundred dollars ever goes right. on your tax return. So right. there's that 50, you can't also deduct the $50 because you never counted it in the first place. Correct. Right. It's just, it's not even real essentially. There, so there's some serious accounting and tax talk today. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So Jeremy, if someone is struggling to keep up with their billing or is just not getting done on a regular basis, um, you know, what advice do you have for folks? Yeah, the first is to not panic. If you have found yourself in a billing mess, right? And we have a couple, or we have historically had a couple of clients that clinicians that come in with $250,000 in aging and they're just, they're saying, I don't know what to do. Yeah, that's not a good place to be. One, don't panic. Most of the time, and I'll caveat it with most of the time, uh, these situations are, the money is just delayed. It's not lost. So with billing and credentialing, there's not a whole lot that can't be fixed. Obviously with credentialing, if you didn't respond to a denied application or uh, you didn't get back a piece of information, that's gonna delay you and that's oftentimes not reversible. But if you're in network and there's an honest goodness billing problem, start to look at the situation forensically. Take one claim, right? So you, you might have $250,000 of aging, but the dragon is probably a little smaller than you think the dragon is. So take one claim and follow that claim back to the insurance company to see why it was denied or why it didn't pay. And then whatever information they give you, take your next step from that and, and keep following the trail. And what we find most of the time is large scale messes are solved by small scale solutions. So just because the problem is big doesn't mean that the solution is big. It oftentimes means the solution is small. We just have to do a little bit of thinking about the problem solving to get to solving the bigger problem. With credentialing, the, the key is to have a fair bit of grit, right? Angela <laughs> Duckworth wrote that marvelous book, Grit, and it basically means that you're, you know in your head, I'm going to keep going. There are probably going to be challenges and frustrations, but you just keep calling and keep tracking and keep following up and keep being the squeaky wheel until you have a contract in hand and even until you have payment from the insurance company. So the trick with billing is big problems don't necessarily mean big solutions. And with credentialing, you just have to keep going. Those are some great tips. Awesome. Uh, so what would you recommend that practice owners look for in a biller or a billing company? Yep. A couple of things I would recommend. So the first is pricing models because pricing models oftentimes can be a really nice carrot or a really bad stick. And what I mean by that is some billing companies or billers charge by the hour or by the claim. 
And so the incentive then is not so much what they can, what value they can add to you is, right? We're a percentage-based model, which means that we don't get paid until our clients do, our, the practices we work with do. So there's a great incentive for us to do that. And our people are also on a profit share. And so they're also incentivized. You know, we need to, we need to make some progress here in order to get this clinician paid. So I look at pricing the, is the first thing. The second thing I would look for is what are their operations? And what I mean by that is, are they going to be transparent with you? Are they going to show you how the billing works? Uh, and what we found and still see a lot is something I call the black magic model, which <laughs> is the, the biller is uh, operating in a different system separate from the clinician. And they're going to just do their thing. And the clinician will be paid through some kind of black magic. And there's not really a lot of transparency. And, and I'm a firm believer in accountability and transparency in all things financial. So, so if your biller is not going to share with you how that is working, then I would forget it. But I would say pricing and transparency of process is the biggest thing. Love it. So Jeremy, tell people where they can get in touch with you and your team. Yeah. So the best place to go is to go to the website uh, or to call 734-437-9432 extension one, and that will get you in touch with Jordan. Uh, Jordan is our sales guy. He's been on the team for two and a half years. Uh, We've only been around for three and a half. So he's been here for most of that. And so he'd be more than happy to talk to you or our website at practicesol.com. Our blog has a ton of resources, a ton of information, and then you can also reach out to us there. We'd love to talk to you. I I know that, you know, you might have a lot of questions and even if you have ancillary auxiliary questions, if you message us through the website, you'll either get a response from a biller or me or Jordan answering that question. So we're, we're more than happy to answer any questions or set you on the path that you need to go down to hit success. Well, thanks so much for being here, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. All right. So listeners, what is your action item for today? What process could you put in place or what improvement can you put in your process for billing that would make your life easier, improve your cash flow, um, and just increase the overall health of your business? Thanks again for being here and we'll talk to you soon. If you need some accounting help, head over to therapyforyourmoney.com and click on the Green Oak Accounting button. There you can find out lots of information about my accounting firm and all of our specialized services for private practice owners. The information contained in this podcast represents the host and guest's general opinions and should not be construed as personalized accounting and tax advice. Listeners should consider all facts and circumstances before applying this information and seek appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Any info provided does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice.